Please take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're walking through the book of Exodus. If you're here with us today, uh, you are meeting us at Mount Sinai, the sixth of ten commandments. God's brought his people there, and he's intending to teach them what it means to have a relationship with the one true God. Now, the words that are spoken at Mount Sinai, they're not Moses' words. Uh, They're not just Moses writing stuff down. These are very word of God. God's voice speaks from the top of the mountain. The people are standing at the base of the mountain. And here, God instructs his people to protect human life. Because the foundation of loving others is the protection of life. So we're going to read chapter 20 of Exodus, verses 1 through 13. And remember that this is God's word. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. You tell us in your word that it pierces to the division of joints and marrow. Father, it has the capacity to cut us deeply and to open us so that we might learn to seek and find Christ. But we can only do that with the ministry and help of your Spirit. And so we pray that you would speak this day through an ordinary sinful crooked stick like me, and that you would point your people to, to the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Laws generally reflect the character and the values of those who make the laws. So consequently, what you find is that a culture tends to reflect, excuse me, the cultural laws that are made in that context tend to reflect the values of that culture, just as God's laws reflect God's character and his values. The decade of the 1960s was described as a, as a cultural decade, a decade of change, Uh, Some called it the swinging 60s. Uh, Your thoughts, your opinions aside, in a general sense, the laws of the 60s reflect the the, the values of the culture of that decade. The decade of the 70s 
was described as a decade of crisis, a decade of individualism, the me decade. Well, your thoughts and opinions aside, in a general sense, the laws of that decade reflect the values of that culture. The decade of the 80s, described as a decade of greed, the me first decade. Your thoughts and opinions aside, I love the 80s, but the laws of that decade reflect the values of that culture. And so it was in the early 1990s, following two to three decades of cultures and laws that that seemed to value passion over restraint, that seemed to value individualism over the common good, that seemed to value death of some over matters of convenience. It was Pope John Paul II who coined a term called a culture of life. He began to speak and say how beautiful it would be to see a shift in our cultural moment. I have rarely quoted a pope in a sermon. But insofar as that phrase captures the heart of the sixth commandment, it's a pretty good term. A culture of life. I suspect if I was to walk down to Tumor's Corner and start asking pedestrians, hey, have you ever murdered anyone? I'd probably get a good 99% of people who would say no. That remaining 1% might go, well, hey, why, why are you asking? Or they might say, if you keep asking me questions, I might. And you recognize, don't you, that Each commandment is understood not only in the negative sense, have you ever murdered someone, don't do that, but also in a positive sense. What must I do in order to keep this commandment? So the the low bar is do not murder, but the bar is much higher and it includes the concept of love because there's this huge chasm between not murdering someone and actually loving them. Our text teaches that those who've been saved by grace, through the obedient life of Jesus Christ, through his willing sacrifice of himself in love for you, must likewise promote a culture of life and love. Three points this morning, what is sacred, what is warned, what is fulfilled. And so we start with what is sacred. The issue of the image of God is really foundational to understand this commandment. It's also foundational to understand every other commandment. Uh, The generation that we're reading about here in Exodus is the first generation to receive what we know of as the book of Genesis. We don't know when it was given to them in their lifetime, but it was given to help them understand God's story, their history, the events of God delivering them out of slavery. But also you recognize that Genesis and Exodus answer two of the most foundational questions of human existence. Who is God and who am I? Today you pick up your Bible, the very first thing you come to is the book of Genesis, and you are immediately confronted with this same fact. The one place where God has divinely set his image is not in a mural, it's not in a statue, it's not even in Mount Rushmore. God only 
puts his image in mankind. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit determined, having been completely satisfied with a relationship of unity in themselves, to open up that unity and to share fellowship and love with the creation particularly mankind. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Placing this image in mankind was unique to all other creation because God said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over everything that creeps on the face of the earth. So no other being that was created was capable of possessing the image of God. Only mankind was endowed with this gift. Just as God reigns over things, he says, mankind, I want you likewise to rule over a part of the creation. And all of this order is meant to send glory back to the Father who has given his image in man. And then when you read from chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26, to chapter 1, verse 27, something changes in the text. And, and, and your Bible indents to show you that something is poetic as, as a reflection. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So that both males and females reflect God's image. Now, the, b- before the fall, this is entirely unmarred. Now, after mankind sins in Genesis chapter 3, the image is marred. And though God's image is still present, it is now seen, as one writer said, like a reflection in a mirror which has been cracked. God's image has not lost its original beauty, but that beauty to our eyes has been distorted by sin. How do we know that God's image is still in mankind? When you study the the third commandment, as we did several weeks back, you saw that the very reason that God instructs his people not to make carved images, not to worship other likenesses as if they were God, is because you cannot create in your own mind any image which can capture the glorious image of God better than he's already captured it by placing it into humanity. So God's image resides in male and female. Therefore, human life is very precious to the Lord. To borrow a concept and kind of twist it from C.S. Lewis, even the most dull and boring person you have ever met bears in himself the marks of the glory of God. What is sacred? The image of God. And where is that image bestowed in mankind? Therefore, human life is precious. Not simply because it's life, but because every life, born or unborn, young or old, saved or unsaved, beautiful or plain, human life is the place where God's image is reflected. Leading up to the days of Noah, the Bible says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And in that overwhelming wickedness, God determined to wipe out mankind. 
But Noah found favor in the eyes of God for no other reason but God's grace. And he was saved in no other way other than Noah's faith. So after the flood, Genesis 9 picks up God's words to Noah. The relationship that God offered to Noah is sometimes called a covenant of continuation. Yes, God says, I I still intend to have a relationship with mankind. And I'm going to choose to do this by extending common grace. Instead of punishing sin immediately as it deserves, God says, I will restrain my hand. I'll show forbearance. Because if you are left to yourselves... And this is what life was like before the flood. If you are left to yourselves in sin, humanity will self-destruct. After the flood, Genesis chapter 9, verse 5 and 6, God reminds Noah that human life is so sacred because of God's image. Noah, here's how things must be from here forward. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Most biblical scholars recognize that this is the place where God establishes capital punishment. According to God's word, if a person is guilty of murder, they are to be put to death if they're guilty of murder. Of course, that requires a lot. It requires special care to determine the guilt. And through the rest of the book of Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament, you see that God created a system whereby justice could be done only under the lawful civil government. Now, why does God do this? I mean, why does God punish this particular sin so severely? You might say, in some sense, it looks like capital punishment would would be an assault against the image of God. In fact, what it is, it's a punishment to fit the crime. In God's law, the, the, the image of God in mankind is so precious that it must be protected by the most severe of punishments. We're going to see this again in Exodus 21 and several other places. It's my first time at Christ Pres. This is a barbaric God. He's not nearly as civil or moral or advanced as modern man. Well, far from barbaric... If you stay with us through the book of Exodus, you'll learn that God designed several profound methods to protect individual rights from mob rule. And we don't really need to try to be smarter than God on this. What's often called lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, that finds its origins in God's law. Your thought might be, well, that's... Seems very antiquated. Somebody knocks out your tooth at the quarry, you take him down to the civil government, and they will knock out his. Somebody accidentally gouges out your eye on the job site, the civil government will gouge out theirs. Sounds insane. 
until you realize that unbridled revenge is much more deadly. God's law is meant to to cause the punishment to fit precisely the crime. No more, no less. And it was meant to protect the image of God from being taken by savage revenge. God knows what fallen human nature is like. Left to ourselves without law, revenge only escalates. You knock out my tooth, I will also knock out your tooth, and then I will hit you with a two-by-four, and then I will shove your wife to the ground, and then I'll also kill your cow. That's the absurdity of, of the sinful heart, that revenge escalates itself. You know that's true, don't you? That's why a very small error on the road, whether deliberate or not, can send you over the edge. You don't even have to be an angry person. You just get the right offense committed against you in the right time and the right way, and you get mad, and you recognize somewhere deep down I could be mad enough at this moment in this car to drive like I want to kill that person. The Bible says that those who've been saved by grace through the obedient life of Christ, through his willing sacrifice of himself from a heart of love, must likewise promote a culture of life and love. What's sacred? God's image. Now we move to what is warned. Now all commentators, you'll you'll notice, I didn't even mention this in the first service, I actually flipped the the main points. Gosh, that was tricky, wasn't it? I completely wrote the sermon and then switched the whole thing. Sorry about that. All commandments apply, as I mentioned, both externally and internally. First, externally, which means these are the kinds of sins that your eyes can actually see. The internal, which we'll talk about in the third point, relates to heart level, the unseen violations of God's commandment. Look at verse 13. It simply says, you shall not murder. And that's really short in English. It's actually even shorter in the original language. Two words, lo ratzak. Many of you grew up on the old King James translation, which says, thou shalt not kill. And as much as you may love and prize the beauty of the King James, this is a spot where it actually doesn't do justice to the translation. Because in Hebrew, there are two different words for kill and murder, just as there are in English, murder. Here's the word, ratzak, which is a premeditated taking of a person's life. One Old Testament scholar explained ratzak as, as putting to death someone improperly for selfish reasons. God clearly means you must not act on your own to decide to end someone's life. On the other hand, katal, which is translated kill, often refers to accidental death caused by no fault or negligence of another person. Katal can even be used in acts of war. It can even be used in the Bible to refer to lex talionis, what I just mentioned earlier, capital punishment. Civil authority inflicts death penalty in the administration of justice. Obviously, the the sixth commandment forbids murder. What are some other external issues that are forbidden in the sixth commandment? Everything that I'm about to mention is very delicate. It requires sensitivity. But before we move to pastoral 
tenderness, it's important to be biblically clear. Uh, First, the sixth commandment forbids suicide. It forbids taking your own life. And this is a sin because even though in the moment you think that your life is your own, to commit suicide is to wrestle from the sovereign hand of God the lordship of your life and to grab it and try to claim it as your own. Yes, it's a sin. It is not unforgivable, but it does have consequences. You ask those who have survived the loss of suicide among family members or friends, and you will hear from them, yet left some pretty significant scars. Of course it did. Kevin DeYoung cites a young woman named Julie, a wife and a mother who endured the the loss of five family members to suicide. Julie says, writing in a journal on biblical counseling, suicide's not a genetic trait, nor is it a family curse. Suicide's a, a sinful choice by an individual. And then she says, that statement's not meant to be unloving or disrespectful. It's, it's simply the truth. Julie says, I dearly loved my family members that committed suicide, but their choices were sinful. And so I offer this not in order to be unloving, but rather to speak timely truth for those who may be struggling For even when you feel that life is pointless or futile, no matter how addicted you may be to some substance or some habit, no matter how you have failed, you still bear God's image. And he is the one who owns that image. It is not yours to take away, for it belongs to him. For those who have witnessed and suffered the loss of loved ones through suicide. I did briefly mention suicide is not an unforgivable sin. I was raised in a context where I thought that it was. Because how could you possibly repent of your sins after you're dead? Well, that would be an understanding that would place repentance as the final work that you could do to save yourself. Grace covers over many sins and we recognize that there is grace even for this sin. The sixth commandment also forbids abortion. This means whether we're talking about the the morning after pill or a deliberate removal of an embryo, a fetus, a fully grown 39 week old baby. The Bible teaches that wherever biological life exists, that human being has been endowed not only with a physical body, but with an eternal soul. A lot of pastors have quoted John Calvin here, who said that the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being, and it is a monstrous crime to rob it of the life that it has not yet begun to enjoy. Which is why Psalm 139 has been so dear and precious to those who would desire to promote a culture of life and love. 
The psalmist says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, while yet there was none of them. Now, your world will tell you that there is a massive difference between Hitler's systematic genocide of an entire race of ethnic Jews and this seemingly simple procedure to terminate pregnancy. It is nothing more than a choice, right? Are they different? Sure, they're different. And yet, biblically speaking, they are both premeditated and they are both deliberate actions to take a human life. Every life is sacred because it bears the image of God. But again, here is another sin which is not unforgivable. Here is a sin where if you have engaged or supported or encouraged abortion, there is mercy that is offered for you. If you have likewise aborted a child, you can be cleansed and freed from that and washed away. When we come to the end of our sermon, I'll show you how. Life is sacred because we bear the image of God. Also forbidden in this commandment is euthanasia, taking the life of a person who is in chronic pain or terminally ill. These are sometimes called mercy killings. Uh, again, it's an attempt to wrestle the authority of human life away from the hands of God. It doesn't matter if you have a white coat. It doesn't matter if you have sterile instruments. It doesn't matter if you have a medical degree. Only God determines when a person is conceived and who conceives. Only God determines when you die. And you recognize when you read the scriptures, there's tons of stories where, where um, God opens the womb or closes the womb where God prolongs the life or seems to shorten a life of an individual for his own purposes. I should also mention in this context, the sixth commandment is violated by careless, risky behavior, which is deliberately done with a blind eye to consequences. That's also a violation of the sixth commandment. One of the rules of interpretation that we went over several weeks back was that each commandment provides a positive and a negative and so it's not sufficient then to simply not murder. You must do what you can do to protect not only your own life, but the life of others. Some of you will be familiar with people that you've known that have said, look, if I'm going to truly live, like I want to live life on the edge. They mean I want to kind of take some risks with my own life. Therefore, sometimes what is categorized as bold or manly or even funny or daring. Sometimes in the realm of alcohol, sometimes in the realm of drugs. I'm not really even that buzzed. I think I can drive. All of that is a violation of the heart of God. Because even in Exodus 21 that we'll read, God forbids negligent homicide. Now, those who've been saved by the grace of God through the obedient life of Christ, through his willing sacrifice of himself from a heart of love, must likewise promote a culture of life and love. What's sacred? God's image. What's forbidden? All of those externals that I've just described, but there's more to it. 
What is fulfilled? All commandments are fulfilled externally and internally. And the internal application comes here in this third point. This is heart level. If you belong to Christ, you profess faith in the Savior, you must understand this particular command in view of God's obedience to Jesus. Let's be clear, apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, your sin will always deceive you. It will tell you you are not that bad. And so I was at a Christian camp at 18 years old, and they handed me a little note card with the Ten Commandments written on them. And then out to the side, each commandment, a scale to grade myself. I am sure that they did not mean it this way. But in the hands of a Pharisee, this was a great recipe for lies and self-deception. You shall not murder. Good. I'm a perfect 10 on that one. Never been convicted of any murders at all. And now I read the commandment in context with the Bible. And I would invite you to do the same. When I think I'm not that bad, I don't really cry out for a savior. Because I think I'm fine. And Jesus says, well, let's be really clear. The Ten Commandments are or what you might call base level obedience. There's a massive difference between avoiding murder and actually genuinely loving. Matthew 5 verse 21 and following, Jesus says that in the eyes of God, anger, insult, even talking about a person behind their back is equivalent to murder because it's a failure to love. 1 John chapter 3 from the New Testament lesson we read earlier, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer because it's a failure to love. We use the Heidelberg Catechism, question 106 and 107 this morning. And 106 summarizes the Bible's teaching on murder. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, a desire for revenge. He regards all of that as murder. 107, when God condemns envy, hatred, anger, he also commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves to show patience and peace and gentleness and mercy and friendliness toward him to protect him and so far as we can and do good even to our enemies. How easy it is to break the sixth commandment. You ever hurt someone with your words on purpose? Do you take joy in the hardship of someone else? Do you want someone to pay for the way they treated you? Do you have an enemy? Many enemies? Is there any place in your heart where you would like for them to receive the revenge that you want to give them? So writing a sermon, I'm reflecting on Dave Dave committed murder against me. I was a freshman in high school, big public high school, Nashville. That spot at the lunch table is very important. I need to sit next to Dustin and Matt. It's about day three. I place my lunch down at the table. I go to get my drink. I come back. 
Dave has moved my lunch. And he set it down at the other end of the table. I was embarrassed. I was mad. I really would kill you if it wouldn't be such a show. I'd really like to hurt you. And so I go to the end of, end of the table and I sit down there with Tommy. I hate Tommy. Tommy bothers me. And then I glance up the table and Dave is laughing. And now I really hate Dave. So writing this sermon, Dave comes to mind. A murderer because of his unkindness, his cruelty, his mockery. 34 years later, the religious zealot in me rises up. Dave broke the sixth commandment. How deceptive is the human heart. For if I understand the words that I preach today, my biggest problem is not that Dave, 34 years ago, did not treat me well. It is rather that I murdered Dave on that day in my heart, and I murdered Tommy by just being unkind to him. And every time I've thought about Dave and remembered this event, I have murdered him again and again and again for a very small slight 34 years ago. I wonder if there are places in your heart where a culture of death reigns. Little rooms like the one that I found there. If you're like me, there's actually many other rooms. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, it tells us that Jesus didn't have any of those places in his heart. Even so far as asking his Father in heaven to, forbid, to forgive the very people who were bringing forth his own death. To be clear, it was a culture of death that took Christ to the cross. Not just in Jerusalem, but in here. In my own heart, Jesus died at the hands of murderers like me to save murderers like me. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying wounds have brought me life. I know that it is finished. You see, friends, those who have been saved by grace through the obedient life of Christ through the willing sacrifice of himself from a heart of love must turn and begin now afresh to promote a culture of life and love. I invite you to do that with me. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its comfort and its peace. We thank you for its truth. Oh God, we lay bare as your word has cut us and opened and exposed the wounds of our hearts, the wickedness and the evil and the corruption. 
We pray, O Father, that we might run and find Christ, the one who died to pay for the sins of murderers. We pray this in his name. Amen.